Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 23rd, we're studying Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. After instructing his disciples once more concerning his upcoming death and resurrection, Jesus draws near to Jericho, where he gives a blind man his sight. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. We'll talk a little bit about context as we get started. What should we know about the Gospel of Luke, what we've been reading that leads us into this last part of chapter 18? Luke is the evangelist who says the most about Jerusalem and not so much that he has the most action set there. That's probably John, but he says the most about Jerusalem, the destiny of the city, um, its rejection of the word of God, but also simultaneously the Messiah's desire to be in the city that a prophet cannot perish away from Jerusalem. So that focus on cities uh, and especially the city of Jerusalem is something that I think we'll see in today's text. What What is it about Jerusalem that's so important for Luke? Yeah, Jerusalem is, for Luke, uh, the beginning of it all. And that actually happens in, if you want to think of it this way, both volumes of his work, right? So if you think of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles as two volumes, like you would say, oh, the Lord of the Rings has three volumes in it, and that's the Lord of the Rings, then you've got Luke, he's got two volumes, and they both begin in Jerusalem. Now, that is not the end of the story. That's not where he wants the gospel to stop. That's not what Jesus has commanded. But beginning from Jerusalem, uh, the witness concerning Jesus will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke's gospel begins in Jerusalem, and it will end in Jerusalem. And so there's, there's a focus on the city, and the city is what it is, and the focus is what it is, not only because it's the beginning of Luke's story, but also because Luke takes very seriously the idea that God's physical presence has been there with his people for ages. And the question of where and how I can find God, have access to God, is urgent in both Luke's gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, there's going to be a lot of debate about, are they speaking against the temple? And does God dwell in a house made with hands? And we see that also in Luke's gospel, because the question is, why does Jesus have to be in Jerusalem? And it's all wrapped up in who he is and, and what the scriptures have said about him. So, I mean, that's the, the temple is a big part of Jerusalem for Luke, the presence of God, and then Jesus as the new temple. Yeah. And I suppose we, we've kind of, we've seen that particularly in the infancy narratives, the childhood narratives of Jesus. Some of that has kind of faded into the background, but now that Jesus is drawing very close to Jerusalem in this text, all of that comes back to the forefront right. that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Right. Yeah. I think the reason that um, the connection to the temple, the sacrificial system, 
the priesthood. Uh, the reason that that fades for us is partly because the the books of the law of Moses, especially Leviticus and Numbers, that and and the end, you know, kind of last third, last half of Exodus, the things that would show us how the ministry of Jesus is related to God's use in Old Testament times of a priesthood, a sacrificial system, the tabernacle followed by the temple. Um, because that's sort of unknown to us, it's hard for us to see the things that are uniquely priestly, healing, um, glorious in the ministry of Jesus in the context that Jesus himself would see them, which is as the divine, the presence of God, uh, now also in a man, God and man at the same time, so that unlike the Old Testament sacrificial system and unlike the temple in Jerusalem, now rebuilt in Jesus's own time, uh, you can access God and a merciful and faithful high priest at the same time, not just in Jerusalem, but wherever Jesus is. Hmm. It strikes me that Luke has this emphasis on Jerusalem, and sometimes we think of Luke as more of a gospel writer and evangelist to the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet he's got this focus on Jerusalem. Right. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking through the other gospels, and Matthew we think of as the gospel to the Jews, and yet you know his gospel ends in Galilee, not in <laughs> Jerusalem. There's a little bit less of a focus on Jerusalem, yeah. and and yet here Luke, the gospel to the Gentiles is really focused on Jerusalem and right. it's going to carry over into acts. How does that, how does that go together? How does Jerusalem, this city that's, you know, this is the capital of Israel. How does that factor into Luke being for the Gentiles? That's such a great question because it, it involves, um, it involves something that is pretty common in church history, but I think often forgotten or, or not taken into account, which is when, Various church historians, most of all Eusebius in the fourth century, try to explain the apostolic source for each of the gospels. Obviously, Matthew and John are apostles, but then they say, well, where did Mark and Luke come from? And, and he says, well, Mark, Mark wrote down the memoirs of Peter. Luke writes down the memoirs of a man who is also in and around the area of Jerusalem, uh, honestly, at this time, but is not yet an apostle. He's not even a disciple of Jesus. And that is St. Paul. Hmm. And I think you see in Luke's way of talking about Jerusalem, St. Paul, two, two things that are really key to both Luke and the letters of Paul. That is one, the Old Testament scriptures of Israel, um, to them belong the writings, right? Paul says to them belong the writings, the oracles of God. Um, those Old Testament scriptures are all intended to point to the Christ, not to a particular, you know, political entity uh, in, in and around Jerusalem as God's end goal. God's end goal was always the in the flesh Messiah. Mm. And then because of that, because the in the flesh Messiah was meant for all mankind, that's what Israel's own scriptures say, then because of that, Everything about Israel that is glorious to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the glory, meaning God's divine presence in the temple, um, all of that. Israel is for the nations and the nations, the Gentiles are, think about Paul talking about this in Romans 11, the nations are grafted in. So there's a nourishing root already there in Israel, which is the source of the Messiah, right? Jesus says in John's gospel, salvation is from the Jews. That nourishing root is not meant 
as, you know, a mark of uh, angry ethnic distinction. He has brought down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But it's meant in order to nourish the nations, as Luke says, beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city for the nations. It's not a place that you're just proud of in the way that, you know, maybe if you're from New York, you're proud of New York. That's fine. But that's that's not all that God had in mind for Jerusalem or for his people. And so it's in that sense, then, that the church today sings hymns such as Jerusalem, my happy home or (laughs) Jerusalem, the golden, that we have the true Jerusalem in Christ. Right. Yeah. And in Christ, right, in Christ, Jerusalem is our capital city for all of us. But that Jerusalem, Paul says in Galatians, is not the is not the earthly Jerusalem, which is racked by constant political controversy and will be after Paul writes Galatians will be destroyed by the Romans in retaliation for um, the first Jewish rebellion. Um, our, our mother, he says in Galatians, is the Jerusalem above, which is the church. And that has all the ethnicities in it. And it's not one specific place because we on this earth have no continuing home. Um, we're looking for, like you see in Revelation, a city to come down from God uh, in which we will dwell everlastingly. All right. With all that background information in mind, let's take a look at the text we've got from Luke 18 today. This begins now at verse 31 of the chapter. And taking the 12, he, Jesus, said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That's our text for today. That's Luke 18 verses 31 to 43. So, Dr. Kuntz, we have the third passion prediction, depending on how you count them. There's a, there's a few other references to Jesus' passion, but there are three really big ones. Right. This third one is the, the most detailed of them all. We've talked quite a bit of the matter of Jesus going up to Jerusalem. What else is there in this passion prediction of our Lord that we really need to pay attention to? There is the conviction, first of all, that the scriptures and especially the scriptures that uh, let's say are forward facing or or open to the future because they have unfulfilled prophecies in them. What we call in our Bible, the major prophets and the minor prophets, um, what you're going to get later on when Jesus explains the scriptures and the things in them concerning himself to the Emmaus disciples, uh, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So in the prophets concerning the son of man, especially are such things as 
are very familiar to us, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, um, the desire for a new dwelling of God with man and the resurrection that we see in Ezekiel. So all those things that are written by the prophets in those books and, and in others uh, will be accomplished. And that is a, an understanding of Holy Scripture that I think is the cause of much confusion during the ministry of Jesus, not only between him and his opponents, but also between him and his disciples. That is, I don't think that they, and, and probably not often enough, we understand that the scripture is itself a, a pushing, motivating force in history. <laughs> you know, and, and you see this at different places. Um, Matthew likes to talk this way about the Old Testament. Um, the book of Ezra says, in order to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, you know, uh, here we go. We're going back to the land because uh, the divine prophet said we would. But I think we maybe take that for granted, that that has a certain necessary force and that that's going to push events forward. Right. Um, that the scripture itself is what is pushing things the way they're going. And so when Jesus talks about these things, he doesn't talk about them as, oh, this, you know, sad, like maybe sort of predictable, but unfortunate thing is going to happen to me. It was divinely predicted. So it's going to happen and therefore will be wonderful because God has intended it. Yeah, you used the word necessary, I think, and yeah. it, it seemed if I'm if I'm looking at it correctly, I I don't see that Greek word dei. It is necessary within this particular text. Right. We've talked about that word in in previous uh, episodes of the show. That you know Jesus will often use that language of necessity when he talks about his passion. You don't have that specific word, but this talk of the scriptures being accomplished or fulfilled that sounds like it's the same thing that he's saying with different words. Yep. Yeah, because what is in the scriptures that remains, let's say, in, I don't know, 150 BC, uh, unfulfilled, uh, the, the rising of the morning star, um, uh, a star coming out of Jacob. Uh, that's, I mean, that's just in the law of Moses, not to speak of everything else in Malachi and Zechariah. Those things have to be accomplished. Uh, God does not lie. That's the basis of our understanding of the Bible because it's Jesus's understanding of the Bible. And so if God does not lie and he has predicted certain things concerning the son of man, which is that title taken out of Daniel specifically, then these things are going to happen. And the inability to see that or to act accordingly is one of the most interesting things about the disciples in all the gospels. In terms of the the way that the scriptures are accomplished. And you noted here that he specifically mentions the prophets. Mm -hmm. So far, as you've been talking, I've been thinking in my mind of the passages you're bringing up, say from like Isaiah 53, which describes the passion of the Christ, mm -hmm. you know, looking forward. In, in what sense does Jesus also accomplish the scriptures that are, I guess you might say more historical in nature? Like how does he accomplish what's written about King David or sure. like more of those historical parts of the prophets? Yeah, because the word prophet, um, usually in discussion of the of the Hebrew Old Testament, also covers books that we we discuss when we study the Bible in English, usually as historical books, such as Samuel, Kings, um, Chronicles usually actually gets tucked under writings, but you get the idea, most of our historical books. So when you think about that, 
um, what you're looking at is, are a combination of two things very basically. One are those things that I mentioned that are looking forward specifically to a suffering servant or a star rising out of Jacob or whatever the case may be. And Matthew is the gospel that will most often quote the Old Testament in that very clear, literal way. Um, in addition to that very clear way, there is a way that takes a little bit more nuance to see, but you can see the New Testament reading the Old Testament in this way as well, which is that it understands a person like David uh, or even a bad king as existing in comparison to Jesus. And that's usually called typology. That is that a king like David, who is righteous, a man after God's own heart, gives you a sense of who Jesus will be. And then Jesus surpasses that, right? So Jesus will say this, for example, when he says, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was very wise. Solomon was a king. Now here is a king who is still wiser, right? So that understanding of typology, which you can see just for quick reference in say like Romans chapter five, where Paul does this with Jesus and Adam, first Adam, second Adam, um, or similar comparison between two Adams in first Corinthians 15, you can see that the new Testament reads the old Testament. That is the spirit of God interprets his own writings. We could say in another way in sometimes a very clear, simple way. Okay. Um, the savior has to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but most often and most extensively in this typological way where I have a type and then I look for the anti-type or the fulfillment of that type. And that, that fulfillment is going to be Christ, the son of man. As Jesus continues in this prediction, he talks about how he will be delivered over. And here he specifies to the Gentiles. I, I looked back into chapter nine, where there are two passion predictions. And in one, Jesus specifies elders and chief priests as those who will reject him. In the, the second, he just talks about being delivered into the hands of men. Mm -hmm. Here he specifies the Gentiles. How did, I mean, I, we know the story, yeah. but but why, why all these different ways of speaking about Jesus suffering at the hands of different groups? Yeah. And the prediction of being handed over to men is the one that I think we, we go reflexively to because it makes the most sense. And it's also the way that most of us here uh, the reason for Jesus's suffering and death most often, that is that humanity has an all encompassing spiritual genetic disease, and that is sin. And this can only be healed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We less often focus on something that matters a lot to people in New Testament times, especially Jesus. And that is on the one hand, uh, what's in, if I remember correctly, the first passion prediction, and that is the betrayal by his own. Okay. And the idea of having his own means that his people, the Jews should accept their King. They should hail him as the true King of Israel. And so there is a, there is a certain bitterness um, or bitter disappointment more precisely, there is an overwhelming sadness in how his own do not receive him, right? In John 1, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And there is something unutterably sad about that. You can hear Paul's similar sadness about their own people, the Jews, uh, in Romans 9, for example. He wishes he could be cut off 
from Christ if it meant the salvation of his people. So there's something very sad about that. The handing over to the Gentiles is a little bit different. And remember that Jesus is tried and things are instigated by his own people and they try him once, but then he has another trial and he's actually killed authoritatively, legally uh, by Pontius Pilate, a Gentile. The handing over the Gentiles is a tragedy for Israel generally. This is what happens when Israelite kingdoms are destroyed, whether the Northern Kingdom first or the Southern Kingdom second, is that the king is handed over, right? And his, his sons are killed before his eyes and he himself is blinded or, you know, whatever the fate of the various kings is, there are multiple deportations. But there's something extremely sad, unfortunate, telling, wrathful about the king of Israel handed over to Gentiles. He is no longer at peace in Jerusalem. His own have betrayed him. And here he is being handed over to foreigners for them to do with him as they please. I've never really thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense, particularly when, and I, again, I think about this more with Matthew's gospel, but the, you know, Jesus as Israel reduced to one, right. that he goes yep. through the entire history of Israel. The fact that he gets handed over to the Gentiles and they're the ones who actually crucify him. Right. And of course, you know, this is what we, we say each week in the creed that he was suffer He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Right. We mentioned the Gentile there, but that's a part of him recapitulating, going through the history of Israel and doing the fulfilling of the scriptures we were just talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, in the same way that it is not possible that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem, it is also not possible that that Israel's king could be handed over to the Gentiles and yet Israel escape punishment. Right. And it's this it's this non-recognition of what is actually happening to their king that will be leveled against them in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and also in the apostolic letters, when, for example, you know, it will be maintained if they, if they knew what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, right? They would not have, they would not have handed their own King over for ignominious execution by foreigners. Now, as Jesus talks about what will happen as he's delivered to the Gentiles, he gets with, he describes with greater detail than his previous ones, mm -hmm. the particular things he's talked about suffering, being rejected. Here he is very specific about being mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon yeah. and being flogged all before the killing. It, in mentioning these very particular details, uh, what's what's Jesus doing? So th th there are, there are a couple things going on here. One is there's just there there is extensive description in order to portray the depth of the humiliation, right? So this is not a judicial process. It's not, it's not just an unfair judicial process. It's these are mostly extra judicial processes. He's being humiliated, right? In a way that, for example, when they find out that St. Paul is a Roman citizen, they will not do to Paul because he is he's actually a citizen. Jesus is not a citizen, right? Only citizens uh, are beheaded with some kind of swift honor, right? Um, Non-citizens mere subjects such as Jesus get crucified. So there's something to portray the depth of, of his humiliation. There's also a kind of marring or defacing going on here that fulfills Isaiah's prediction that he will have no form or comeliness that we shall look upon him, that, that Jesus in his 
in the depths of his humiliation, uh, near to death, will be defaced, right? Um, he will have that which is natural to a human face, that is to be, to be seen, um, to be looked upon. And he will become the kind of person that you can't really bear to look at, right? So when you think about Jesus and his crucifixion, right, even when he arrives before he's actually nailed to the cross, you have to keep in mind that he is somebody that you would want to look away from, right? You, so when we say, well, look to the cross or, or look to Jesus, you have to understand what that means, right? Um, at his crucifixion, that means looking at somebody that is, it's sort of like it's awkward or, or it, it turns your stomach or, or you feel embarrassed for him or, you're, you're kind of just disgusted by his appearance without thinking whether he deserves to look that way or be treated that way. So there's something extensive about the description of, of the humiliation, not only to say how deep the humiliation is, the, the depths to which the Son of Man is willing to go for the salvation of men. There's also something um, poignant in it, in that when Jesus dies, he is not someone that people are looking at. Um, and that is connected to maybe the strangest point, which is why I saved it for the third. But the comparison that Jesus draws between his being lifted up on the cross and the raising up of the serpent in the desert so that those who look to it shall be saved. You have to understand when that's happening that the people who are suffering in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, are being bitten by the very thing that they're supposed to look to. Jesus is being portrayed in a way um, so so deeply humiliated and humiliating and so unbecoming that this is, this is why um, not only the evangelists will say things like, he took our sins and our diseases upon himself, right, or into himself, but also that Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin. He became that hideous. So what you're confronted with when you see the appearance of Jesus is, I mean, it's not like, it's not like Jesus did something that he deserved to be mocked. I mean, he's going to be mocked as a king. He actually is a king, right? He's going to be insulted. The insults are not going to stick, right? It would be like trying to insult, I don't know, like a really successful athlete and say like, you're slow and you know, you don't, you don't make any money. Well, that's literally the opposite of the truth. So, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Exactly. When someone insults you with something that's completely untrue, right? So he's mocked, he's insulted unjustly, he's spit upon, um, it, which is a kind of, you know, perverse uh, inver inversion of God not spitting upon Adam, but, but breathing. Uh, life into him. And, and when Jesus spits on dirt, it heals people, but he spit upon as a mockery. And then they're going to, they're going to scourge his body even before we speak of killing. All of that is a portrayal for us of sin. <laughs> um, and he is taking it all in the representative, vicarious, substitutionary way that he receives any suffering that he receives because he doesn't deserve any of it, but he is taking all that we do deserve, uh, you know, insults that would stick mockery that would be, you know, hurtful because true, um, spitting, uh, at what is disgusting in us and scourging for evils that we've done 
And instead he takes it into himself. He becomes sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah, and that is fantastic news from the suffering of Jesus. We're going to pick up more of this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're looking at the end of Luke 18 with Dr. Adam Coons. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 23rd. We're studying Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43 with Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we were looking at the very end of Jesus' passion prediction, emphasizing the great humiliation that Jesus has in preparation for his death and just the, the striking language. I think sometimes we forget the the great humiliation of Jesus, as you were saying before the break, and then just the, the striking language, they will kill him. You know, you know, yeah. We talk about Jesus. He died on the cross, yes. but he was killed. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the violence yes. against him. Sometimes we, we forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, because I, I, I like crucifixes as much as the next guy, but most of them are too nice looking. You know, um, a cross that has the body of Jesus on it is a wonderful, is a wonderful thing to look upon. But many of them, I think, are too beautiful by half. And so when you look on them, something, I mean, there is something beautiful in the death of Jesus. That's true. That's very true, obviously. But the beauty has to be perceived through the blood, through the wounds. And if the blood and the wounds are not really all that easy to see because the crucifix is, you know, a, a gold plated body of Jesus or whatever the case may be, then it's a little hard to see the violence, the sadness, the marring, um, the lack of form or comeliness that we should look upon him. So when they say, when they say kill, right, Jesus is treated like someone who dies the kind of death that none of us wants to die. Not just that it's long, which I think sometimes, you know, we do, we do stress or we do think about that he's three hours on the cross and, and crucifixion is really a death by suffocation, right? So the one who breathes life into man dies by giving up breath because your body gets too heavy, right? It's not just that you're bleeding as an atoning sacrifice, as a lamb, but the, the cause here is suffocation, and that lasts a long time. The idea that that is a killing, that the blood of one greater than Abel is being shed by people perhaps even more wicked than Cain, is something that you're right, we do forget. And I, I think that we think about it, you know, you look at the, the gold-plated corpus on the cross or, you know, um, on the pastor's you know, pectoral cross over his vestments or something. It's kind of like, it's kind of nice. 
strange, that's strange to say. It's kind of, kind of pleasant, right? It's kind of churchly and it's like the vestments, you know, it's kind of nice. And, and that's, and that's fine. I mean, that, I, I do think that captures something about the crucifixion, but it doesn't capture and they will kill him because his death is not like the death of someone who is old, uh, full of years, has lived a wonderful life and is surrounded by his family who love him and, and will be in the church uh, for his funeral in a few short days. There is a beauty in that death that Jesus is denied. Jesus does not get to die old and full of years in this way. This, this makes his triumph or, or what Paul will call his vindication by the spirit, his resurrection, all the sweeter because he is murdered by evil men. It's striking how much Jesus in his, well, they are passion predictions, Yeah, how he does focus on his passion. Mm -hmm. He always, he mentions the resurrection on the third day, but it's certainly not the focal point. It, I mean, and we've seen this through Luke, I suppose, especially in this travel narrative of always going through the suffering first. Yeah. And every time Jesus speaks about his passion, that's where the emphasis lies. He does mention the resurrection and that really, I mean, thinking forward into, as you said, the second volume that's where the preaching comes in of the apostles. They talk about the crucifixion and then how God raised him from the dead. Right. That really starts to take center stage. But right here, the resurrection gets mentioned, but the suffering is really what Jesus is emphasizing at this point. Yeah, there is a kind of focus that I, I think that, you know, maybe we, we have seen in women who are about to give birth, where their whole body and spirit is focused on this one act that is so essential. And especially in Luke's gospel, you can see Jesus doing that because the atoning sacrifice of the cross is so essential that trying to skip beyond it would be absurd, right? Or acting like it's merely a stage. Um, the suffering, the tribulation, those are the means by which he will obtain life for all. So he is happy to talk about them in the same way that an athlete would be happy to talk about the rigors of both training and gameplay. I mean, he's doing those things for the sake of the trophy, right? Um, he's going through those things, putting himself through those things, knowing that they're going to happen for the sake of the championship. But to act as if they were beside the point or shy away from discussion of them or shy away from depiction of them as churches sometimes want to do, you know, they don't want to see Jesus on the cross. That um, doesn't make sense because Jesus is not afraid of suffering, right? That's why he can talk about it because he's not trying to avoid the point. And Hebrews picks this up wonderfully when it says that like a strong man running his course with joy, right? Why is it with joy? It's because it's painful and it's hard and you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and sweating and your body hurts, but you're doing it for the sake of what you get at the end. And so you're not afraid of what you're doing. You're not afraid of the sweat or the pain or the aches or any of it because you want to win. And Jesus wants to accomplish what he has been sent to do. And because the cross is on the way, right, that he is walking, he's not afraid of it. Now, St. Luke then tells us the reaction of the disciples to this, and they don't understand, which isn't all that surprising. Yeah. We've seen the disciples not understand throughout the gospel. Yeah. But maybe what strikes us as unusual is that the saying was hidden from them. Right. 
and that's why they didn't grasp it. What does that mean that that this was hidden from them? Yeah, uh, hidden. You can hear that's what's called a passive verb. So it's it's happening to the subject of the sentence, which is the which is um, that this saying is hidden was hidden from them. So when you have passive verbs in the Bible, and it's not really clear who's doing it, um, then we we generally presume. Um, and we're right to presume in this case, certainly because this is divinely imparted knowledge, but the disciples can't pick up on it, is that God is hiding it from them. He will do this again in um, the passage I've already mentioned after his resurrection, when he keeps the eyes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus from recognizing him until a certain time. Or Paul's conversion in Acts will be described as like having scales fall from your eyes. So the inability of people to recognize the truth of God, the presence of God is in God's hands. And I think people get scared by that. Like they get worried, like, well, when is he going to let them see? But this is actually the absolute best news <laughs> because it means that people's salvation, their ability to grasp truth or to be with Christ is entirely up to God. Thank God it's not up to us. <laughs> so, so it is hidden from them by God and he will at the right time show these things to the disciples when he needs them to understand. But right now, right now they don't. So in, in that regard, is the, just the text as a whole, as we're looking at it, when Jesus heals a blind beggar, is that maybe put side by side, not only because they did, these things did happen, yeah. but as a picture of what will happen for the disciples in the future when the Lord lets them see. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a relationship here between the ear and the eye that is really important, um, where people tend to trust their eyes, right? I mean, we have an entire state in our union uh, that's the show me state where you have to, you know, people are going to use their eyes to figure out what is true. But the problem there is that biblically, and this goes through tons of places in the Old Testament, not just here, biblically eyes are a lot, are a lot less reliable than ears. Um, ears hear the word of God, even when the things that the word of God is saying have not yet come to pass and won't for years. Right. And, and God can speak and people will, based on their eyes, laugh at him like Sarah does when she hears that she's going to have a baby the next time he comes back. But the ears are going to get you a lot closer to the truth and are actually finally going to get you the truth in a way that the eyes don't notice that the blind beggar can't see anything. But he has heard a true thing about Jesus, which is that Jesus is the true king of Israel, meaning he's, according to the, the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7, he's the son of David. He's the one through whom God is giving his favor to his people. And so this man who cannot see anything is the one who understands the things that are currently hidden from the 12 who can see. Talk more about that title that the blind man gives to Jesus. Jesus, well, he first, I mean, just to, to work our way through the story, mm -hmm. we'll come back to Jericho in a moment. Yeah. But first, when when Jesus is identified for the blind man, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then the blind man calls out to him, Jesus, son of David. Yeah. So what is the significance of that, of that title? Well, and that is marvelous because Nazareth is not a place <laughs> that David lived. So what he is doing is he has heard something uh, about Jesus of Nazareth that has caused him to believe, contrary to the people in Nazareth back in chapter four, contrary to a lot of other things, he actually believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the true king of Israel, which plenty of people don't and haven't and won't. So uh, he said, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Why didn't you say so before? That's the king of Israel. I know that guy. So he hasn't seen him, but he has combined together a couple of things that he has heard, which is the son of David will have healing for his people. The son of David will save his people with the idea that this Jesus of Nazareth, whatever, we don't know exactly what he heard about him. I don't think it has to be very much, but that Jesus of Nazareth has been doing the kinds of things that only the son of David could do. So Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Jesus, (laughs) I have to talk to you. Um, And so he's going to use son of David. It's, it's a beautiful confession and it's, it's kind, it's a little sad sometimes um, that these, these confessions that we find all over the gospels that mean so much to the people in the times of the gospels didn't mean quite enough in church history to make it into most to our creeds. You know, because our creeds come out of controversies about other things, but there are beautiful titles like son of David, king of Israel that you can run all, you know, second Samuel seven, go check out Psalm two, Psalm 110. And you find such marvelous promises given with these kinds of titles, Jesus, son of David. I mean, it, it says it, it says almost everything. Well, and then what about the prayer that he offers to the son of David that we've heard this prayer before, have mercy on me. How is that an appropriate prayer to this true king of Israel? It's an appropriate prayer because, you know, you're not, you're not being pushy with the king. (laughs) Um, You're, you're not, you're not treating the son of David as if, you know, um, the best thing that he could do for himself today is to help you. Um, You're just asking for help. And that is the kind of prayer that I think is, is too rare um, because it requires humility, right? Not only a sense that something is wrong, but also a sense of yourself in relationship to him, right? That he doesn't need to give anything to you. Um, he doesn't necessarily, you can't necessarily do anything for him, but you know how kindly and and gracious and open-handed he is with his favors and his mercies um, in the way that his father David was, um, loyal to his people, helpful, right? And so you, you just say, please have mercy on me. You know, give me some relief from what sin has gotten me into. So it's a very humble, beautiful prayer because it's a prayer of faith and it's it's a faith that has not a a fleck of self-righteousness about it. It, it, I mean, it's the kind of prayer that uh, earlier on we heard from the publican um, in the temple, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Have mercy on me. That's all I'm asking. 
Yeah. Well, and it's not it's not a pushy prayer, but it is a persistent prayer. You, <laughs> yeah. you brought up the, yeah. the tax collector. And then the text right before that in Luke 18 is the parable of that widow who wouldn't leave the unrighteous judge alone. Right. Here you've got a blind man who is rebuked by the crowd, but he won't leave the son of David alone. Yeah. Well, and I, I love the entourage. You know, there are so many people that believe that I think this is still true, but certainly in that crowd, they believe they know better than Jesus, what Jesus should be doing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just the absolute best, you know, you see how people are. So, um, you know, Hey, shut up. You know, he's got other things to do. He's got to talk to important people. You know, uh, maybe he will at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. You know, who knows what he needs to, you know, he doesn't have time for you, you idiot. Yeah. So, uh, they warn him, but he cries out all the more because, because he knows what the son of David is here for. The son of David is not here for the priorities that men have assigned to him. He's here to accomplish divine things, which involves mercy and, and, and peace and, and, and life from the dead. So, I mean, what else is he supposed to be doing? Right. And I mean, you see that divine priority that Jesus has versus the priorities of men and the ways that, that they would take him. No, Jesus is here to help this man who can't do anything right. for himself. Right. What, what a wonderful picture. Now, we, we skipped over this, but I do want to come back sure. to it because we the bit of geography, Jesus is drawing near to Jericho. Now, and on the one hand, that makes sense because Jesus has been traveling from Galilee south to, to toward Jerusalem. Jericho is probably going to be on the way. Right. Is there anything more to, to the fact that Jesus is in and around Jericho in this text and in the, the one following. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jericho figures into uh, the travel uh, in the parable of the, of the good Samaritan as well. Yeah. Um, when, <laughs> if you are so, you know, sacrilegious that you will actually write in your Bible, which I would actually recommend you can buy another Bible. <laughs> Anytime you see Jericho after the book of Joshua, you should just highlight it in red because <laughs> it's not supposed to be there. Jericho was refounded at the cost of Israel's idolatry, as predicted. So its its existence is wicked. Um, when we think of, and uh, you know, a lot more people live in Las Vegas than used to, I guess. But you think of Las Vegas or something as sin city. You know, it's just what happens there stays there because it's too wicked to mention. You know, back at home in Des Moines, right? Um, it, you know, when you, when you see Jericho, you need to think of whatever Las Vegas times a million, right? Because it is founded upon idolatry. It is founded upon wickedness, but the son of man is, is pleased to go there and to heal. So there is something very, very essential and beautiful about his presence there that, and, and, and we'll see this too in the opening up of the kingdom to the Gentiles, in the growth of the word of the Lord throughout the world, uh, certainly throughout the Roman world in the Acts of the Apostles. And that is that Christ and, and his word, his message, his people are undaunted by the sin and the history of sinning involved in any place. Uh, because the presence in Jericho is stunning when you consider what that city is founded upon, um, sacrifices to pagans, the murder of children, um, just the one though. So not, not like many um, towns and cities in America where children are killed in far, far greater numbers. Christ does not despise those places either, 
right? Um, he will go to them. He will heal. He will have mercy. Uh, so the presence in Jericho is not just this little, oh, geographic detail. We don't, it's kind of hard to say the word or whatever. The presence there is very significant because every time you see that, you should highlight it in red. Hmm. Right, because Jericho wasn't supposed to be there. Much like the, someone made this point recently that I heard, much like the Canaanite woman who comes to beg for, from Jesus. I mean, you think about what did the Lord in the Old Testament command to be done to the Canaanites? <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah, she's a, she's a strange, strange survivor. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, anytime we see Jesus dealing with these places like Jericho or a Canaanite woman, that we should recall his his great grace, these people that that are idolaters and have deserved his wrath, yet he still deigns to go to them to deliver not condemnation, but as the son of David to, to give his mercy. Right. And as we record this, um, we are the day before St. Patrick's Day. And I think a lot of people think of St. Patrick as Irish. He wasn't himself Irish. He was himself English. He had been enslaved by the Irish as a, as a young man, as a youth, really. Um, and then went back as a missionary to the Irish. So when you when you think about that, uh, one story among, I'm sure, thousands in church history, you understand that that is all in the image of what Jesus is doing here, which is he is not scorning sinners, uh, even for particularly heinous sins. He is in their midst with the mercy. Talk a little bit about how Jesus responds to this blind man. He asks, you know, what do you want? He says, let me recover my sight. Jesus then repeats it. And then he, he uses this phrase, your faith has made you well. We've heard him say that. What What is Jesus telling this blind man? Yeah. Um, I, and I think it's significant that, first of all, he stops and he commands that the man be brought to him. So contrary to what people imagine, um, he will be busy with what he's actually there to do. And when the man does come to him, uh, Jesus talks to him like someone who is a servant. What do you wish me to do? Right. Um, what would you have me do? And we know that the man uh, maintains his humility, doesn't act presumptuous with Jesus. He says, Lord, you know, which even if, you know, even if you don't want to read everything that that word could mean biblically, um, although I think you could, uh, even if you just want to say, well, he's kind of saying like, sir, he's still being very respectful. I want to receive my sight. Jesus says, receive it. Um, and see, his word is doing that right? His word says, receive it. And it's already happening, right? Uh, the apostles will preach this way in Acts, right? Uh, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you and all your household shall be saved. That, that imperative to faith is not a demand for something that isn't there. It is the creation in the commanding of what will be there, right? Um, receive your sight. There's the sight call upon the Lord. So they do, right? Um, faith is created by this imperative. Uh, we, we understand this because we say, um, you know, lunch is ready, go get it. You know, I mean, someone's not going to be like, well, why don't you just bring it to me? Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> the imperative creates the faith that goes and gets the lunch. I believe you. It's ready. I'm going to go get it, right? Yeah. So receive your sight. The faith has made you well, and this is all over the gospels, but the notion of healing, 
or being made well, which I think we think of this is in slogans for things like pharmacy chains, be well. Um, I think maybe they say that if you pick up your prescription or even if you just buy a soda, be well. I think they have to say is that CVS or Walgreens? I don't know. But your faith has made you well. The Bible doesn't think about wellness in exclusively physical terms. So even people that have physical problems such as blindness, deafness, etc., can be healed by the Son of Man according to faith. That is that the essential thing about them is not that they're blind or seeing. It's that they're believing or unbelieving. Because a believing man could also be blinded. Um, a believing man could also be like the Son of Man scorned and spit upon. The essential thing would not be what he looked like or how well he was in a physical sense at that moment or whether he were healed, thank God. It would be that his faith was in the Lord. So your faith has made you well. Dr. Coons, we have about, about a minute and a half left on the morning. Help us to, to wrap this text up. Give us the good news between Jesus' passion prediction and this healing of the blind man. What's the good news for us as Christians today? The good news is that any of these healings is a little preview of the marvels that the passion wins for you. It is, it is that simple. It's as if throughout your life, uh, before you are raised from the dead by his resurrection call, long before that, long before Christmas, you get to open Christmas presents. And so it's wonderful to have something like the passion prediction with the promise that he will rise on the third day, right before one of these little episodes where one human being brings one problem to Christ in humility, in faith, and Christ is pleased to behave then just as he does in his passion and resurrection, which is as the servant of mankind, as one who is pleased to take on the form of a servant, pleased to suffer, pleased to be scourged and killed and spit upon and mocked and all the rest, pleased to run his course with joy that he may obtain an everlasting salvation for us. So when you see these little episodes or you look elsewhere in the gospels and you see some other healing or something, think of those as little previews, snapshots, snippets of both the life that he has for us and the life that we have in him. Even now, even before, after the suffering and after death, we rise with him. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 18, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.